This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We saw China last year take a large step forward on the global stage with a push to be a major part of the Paris Accord, the continued strength of its economy, and its want to invest in other parts of the world. But as we start 2018, it's interesting to take the time to look at what can be expected in this year ahead. To delve into that, we welcome in here to the studio Minwan Zhao, who is an associate professor of management here at the Wharton School. And also joining us on the phone is Ann Lee, who's an adjunct professor of economics and finance at New York University, as well as the author of the book, Will China's Economy Collapse? Minwan, great seeing you again. Happy New Year. Thanks Thank for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And great to have you back on the show with us. Great. Enjoy being here. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Ann. Uh, I guess let's let's start with looking at 2017. And when you look at, at the year just past Minwan, what grade, how do you view the year for, for China? Because, I mean, there's so many aspects you could talk about. But overall, do you think it was a very good year for the country? Well, I think one bottom line is China survived. And if you remember our conversation one year earlier, people were really pessimistic about the debt issues in China and the political potential political issues around the 19th. Congress and yeah. it was uh, there are so much uh, there's so much uncertainty back then and I, I think we talked about potential capital outflow yeah. um, but China has withstood the the kind of suspicion very well um, the from the political point of view and from the economic point of view uh, it seems that most commentators are changing their mind and saying well I think the crisis is over and. I would say the the year was great for Xi Jinping. <laughs> yeah, uh, he seemed to come out as the biggest winner uh, in China, uh, given you know all the things he wanted, all the power he consolidated, the people that he wanted in the standing committee. Um, he literally got everything he wanted, pretty much. And as far as China, I mean, I think that it's going to be more or less under his control. And I think overall, I, I would agree um, that China, you know, had a, a decent year. And uh, and I think that uh, all the threats that, you know, President Trump had uh, said during his campaign that was anti-China, a lot of it didn't come to fruition. Um, so that was a big sigh of relief for many of the Chinese. Well, how do you view, I mean, Juan, uh, President Xi? Because as, as Ann mentioned, it, it was, fr- from the American perspective, it was a very interesting year hearing some of the rhetoric back and forth right. between he and President Trump. Yet this was also a year where these two gentlemen had meetings and started to talk over some of the issues that they may have. Right. Well, he's really the, you know, extreme version of China has uh, what China had been in the past 30 plus years, right? Uh, it's the pros and cons of authoritarian regimes. On the one hand, well, you know, I like to talk how much I like to talk. So yeah. the censorship and all that, yeah. I'm not a fan of. But on the other hand, the execution is there. You know, he, he wants to clean up the air. And the air got cleaner. And, you know, I'm from an industrial town. And the kind of uh, ruthless execution of anti-pollution measures, of closing down factories and, mm-hmm. and all that, it got done just because, it, you know, uh, this is from my personal point of view. Um, Ten years ago, there was a lot of worry about harmonious society, 
right? About social unrest, about yeah. any potential, you know, unrest because of unemployment and so on. But as Anna said, you now that everything is consolidated, um, he's free to do what he wants to do. And uh, um, in a sense, people also feel the endorsement from the state that things are not going to go terribly wrong. So mm-hmm. uh, stability does play a role in, in, in the confidence in investment. What, what's the reaction, though, uh, of the people? I mean, when you talk with friends, family, colleagues th- that are over in, in China, uh-huh. what's their reaction? What are the people of China saying? There's no such thing called people of China, well, right? right? There are right, all yes. walks of life, right. but you know, from the everyday, you know, residents in um, certain cities, um, that's where I'm from. Life is good, you know. Air got cleaned up, pollution uh, got just a lot of polluting industries got eliminated. Um, streets are clean, beautiful, and if you go to any towns in China now. They're really beautiful. They're really clean. Mm-hmm. They, they build bathrooms everywhere. So the kind of transformation they're very happy about, well, the moment you move to the in the, uh, intellectuals in big cities, uh, there's a lot of concern of the authoritarian regime. There is a lot of concern that uh, the uh, cultural revolution may come back and a lot of discussion about going backwards. So um, on the social media, people are voicing, you know, the, the discussion about cultural revolution has never been so intense mm-hmm. uh, in the past 30 years just because the intellectuals are really worried. And. No, he pretty much summed it up. I agree. Uh, there is that divide between sort of the everyday uh, Chinese citizen and what the intellectuals, you know, who work in the universities or in the media might have. They they would have, you know, starkly different opinions about Xi's rule uh, because they're, uh, you know, they have different priorities in terms of what they think are important. And so um, you're going to get you know, vastly different perspectives. But but to a degree, I, I would think that part of of uh, of the the view of Xi Jinping is also that that he presents himself as a as a leader of a country, and not everybody does that. Uh, you know, there's questions about that here in, in the United States at times. But I mean, he is out and he is talking with a variety of other leaders. Uh, there's conversations obviously going on with with you know Emmanuel Macron and and other countries about forming partnerships to build out the Chinese economy, which is something we talked about as well right. over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and whether or not the growth numbers that were were publicized were actually you know could we put stock in them? So I mean for for that part of it, I find it interesting as well. Right, he certainly has the the vision to putting use China's. Excessive capacity. I wouldn't say you know nowadays uh, the biggest concern is excessive capacity, but the manufacturing power that China has built up in the past yeah. forty years. And um, yeah, I agree. There's some vision there, although you know whether this is too much risk for China to take at this moment. Yeah. It's still very controversial. So the growth rates that we had talked about in the mm-hmm. past and have been reported. How much strength do you now put in in those numbers? I mean, because as we said, there was some question about whether or not you know those numbers were truly the growth levels that they were seeing. Right. Um, well, I think the growth is real. You know, the there are pockets of concerns. Debt is still a big concern. The local government debt is still on a, a potential time bomb. 
but the consumption is picking up very quickly. Uh, service industry is picking up very quickly. If you mm-hmm. look at the tourism, restaurant, and all that, um, e-payment and e um, the online payment and and uh, e-commerce that sector has really picked up people feel more comfortable you know spending um so the real estate bubble is still there the um the local government that is still there but the hope is that they will be um digested if the economic growth can continue of course you know as i said anything with time bomb things may go the other way yeah and yeah uh i would agree that the consumption piece is very strong. I think that in itself, you know, will guarantee, you know, at least 2 to 3% growth uh, over, you know, the global growth. And what China has uh, been putting a lot of stock in is their Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, that's just going full steam ahead. And I think that's really where, you know, all the extra growth will be made up. some people think that it's overhyped. I think that China, you know, is making it a priority. And so uh, with, you know, the, you know, a meeting with Macron at the beginning of this year, and I'm sure many more to come, he'll take the countries that have been sort of skeptical in the European Union and other places. And I think that he's going to really uh, try to you know, come up with something that will be appealing and make it work. And I think that this is something that's been underreported, particularly in the States, because uh, a lot of people are unaware of this initiative. Um, but it is really central to China. And uh, I don't think we can really underestimate how much uh, extra growth that can be because it is, you know, not just directly the, the, the infrastructure piece, but, you know, all the follow-on trade and and, uh, and other business co- commerce opportunities that result from that, well, that will add to the growth. And, and, and take a moment for those people that, that don't follow it closely. Give us the, the, the shortened version of what the Belt and Road Initiative really is. So it is both a geopolitical as well as an economic uh, initiative in which China is uh, offering to build out infrastructure uh, throughout the world that is, many people have said that it is akin to the Marshall Plan, uh, except that it is, you know, many times larger in terms of what China plans to spend in infrastructure than the U.S. did in the Marshall Plan back in its day. And uh, and by building infrastructure, uh, it is attempting to use its own currency uh, to build it and also use its own uh, extra capacity that it has uh, to to push that out to the rest of the world. And in this way, it'll accomplish the economic uh, priority of keeping China's engine growing within its domestic economy, uh, but also, uh, you know, create more economic opportunity in parts of the world that have not been brought into the modern economy, such as Central Asia and others, and this will add to global growth and add to China's growth. Uh, And then also accomplish the geopolitical uh, objectives, which is to create stronger friendships, ties, and to get people more used to using the Chinese currency uh, in lieu of 
say, uh, other currencies like the U.S. dollar, uh, you know, in, in, right. in commerce and trade. And so I think that uh, these two are, um, are are very complementary for what China wants to do, and uh, and it's you know, and it's gaining momentum. And this has uh, certainly been a concern for uh, the U.S. and its allies like Japan. Um, and so I think that we'll certainly see more tension uh, around these areas in 2018. Um, but for the time being, I think that it's safe to assume that, you know, the train has left the station and, and this is something to expect. Yeah. And I, I agree. This is a very ambitious plan. Um, the only difference between uh, the Road and Belt Initiative and the Marshall Plan is, you know, although there are always different voices around any plan, Marshall Plan was readily accepted yeah. by uh, Western Europe, and the only country worried about this would be Russia. And the Road and Belt Initiative is really the dance of many, many parties okay. with very different goals and very different uh, calculations. So. The recipient countries are not readily, you know, accepting, gladly accepting the aids. It's not aid. There's the other loans for in infrastructure um, projects. There are a lot of protests. There's a lot of worry, including the stronger allies of China worry that the, the projects will be handled by the Chinese. And as a result, the government may be influenced. Um, you know, other neighboring countries are, are worried that, you know, the initiatives will change the trade route, will change the geopolitical uh, equilibrium there. Mm. Um, Japan was worried. India was worried, not to mention the United States. So um, I would say this is a much messier geopolitical situation than in the Marshall Plan. And uh, the outcome depends on how the whole game theory type of, um, of dynamic will play out. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The Unloading in our studios here in Philadelphia with Minwan Zhao of the Wharton School and on the phone with Ann Lee, who's an adjunct professor at New York University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Switching topics a little bit uh, briefly, you mentioned about the, the kind of from the environmental standpoint, mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of people have also talked in, in the last couple of months about the fact that China could be the country that ends up being kind of the de facto leader of the Paris Accord because of the fact that right now the United States is not taking that role. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's a possibility in your mind? I think it's every bit in China's interest to promote environmental protection and to uh, to lead in that area for two reasons. One, China is heavily polluted because of the quick industrialization in the past 40 years. So um, there's a public support for uh, dealing with the environment. And the second is for economic reasons, because you don't want to compete directly with established industrial giants on existing technology, right? right. So leapfrogging them, you know, developing electric cars versus the, you know, diesel cars or gas cars and compete directly with the giant established giants is um, is making sense from the strategic point of view so China is promoting all the renewable energy they're promoting electric cars they're promoting uh, all these solar panel equipped um, infrastructure that uh, would be uh, cheaper for China to build from scratch than for for example US to renovate 
yeah. from the established systems. So uh, from a leapfrogging point of view and from competition point of view, uh, I think that's the game China is trying to play. And Yeah, I would say that China um, has no choice but to really be a leader in this area. Uh, it, it was unsustainable in terms of their pollution uh, before they were pushing, uh, you know, a greener economy, and and so uh, so aside from just the competition piece, uh, it's just a plain sustainability piece. Uh, the people there are dying of cancers, uh, you know, air pollution, water pollution, everything was just, you know, gotten to a point where it was just out of hand, and uh, they can't continue to grow if. They don't have arable land or clean water to drink, so they needed to uh, quickly adopt new solutions fast. And um, and so it just so happens that you know what they have to do to address uh, their uh, internal pollution problems in order to keep you know uh, unrest and everything under control. It just happens to you know coincide with the fact that you know the rest of the Western world loves that idea too, and so. Um, they were able to again marry this, you know, uh, political objective with you know their economic uh, and environmental needs as well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know the U.S. because you know it uh, doesn't have the same dire uh, problems as China does today. Uh, it doesn't have the same urgency and and therefore Trump is probably able to push back on it whereas uh, I don't believe that uh, China has that same option and so um, and so I guess you know it will work to China's benefit from you know a, I guess a political standpoint in terms of supporting the Paris Agreement. Speaking of President Trump, what's your reaction, and to all, all the recent commentary about, and it's obviously kind of been off and on over the last couple of uh, months, about the trade issues between uh, between China and the United States? Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that um, it's, you know, it isn't as smooth as uh, as I think, you know, we'd like to see. Obviously, when Trump went over with his, uh, uh, you know, consortium of CEOs to to visit China, uh, it looked like there was, you know, going to be a nice opening and a lot of cooperation. But as soon after uh, that trip, the U.S. announced that they weren't going to recognize China as a market economy for the WTO. Um, it was also considering, you know, other trade sanctions, and so. Um, so even though it's, it was very positive while we, they were over there, as soon as they returned, it turned negative. Uh, the sort of bait and switch uh, probably wasn't well received by the Chinese, um, and and I think that uh, you know with Trump, there's he's probably fighting again still with different factions, uh, maybe within his administration in terms of you know panda bear huggers versus people who you know, are, are anti-China, uh, you know, that may, uh, you know, may be a reason for sort of the schizophrenic behavior that um, the U.S. has towards its relationship with China in, in the economic terms. And so um, I, I think that we're probably going to continue to see this tension. Um, and, you know, China 
And we'll and we're having a problem with your phone. We will get you back online. I'll let you pick that up, uh, Manuel. What's your expectation uh, between the U.S. and and China and the, the concerns about trade? Well, I think uh, first of all, both realize they cannot live without each other. So you see a lot of rhetoric, which is damaging because. Economics need stability, so any uncertainty is not helpful. Um, but then I, I suspect there will be an all-out trade war. But there will be like examples to be made here and there. So, for example, the U.S. Uh, China will uh, require the technology companies to set up local servers if you ever want to enter our market, and the U.S. is putting up all kinds of you know barriers for Chinese companies to enter. Uh, the recent example was last week's um, AT&T canceled their initial agreement to um, to sell Huawei cell phones. Sure. And that was big news for the Chinese because, um, you know, they everyone suspected there, were, uh, there was political intervention in, into this, and uh, it was a big upset for Huawei's uh, ambition to be like the, the top uh, cell phone sellers in the world. So there will be like examples made of Huawei uh, from here and examples made of, say, Google or other companies uh, or Apple from there. Um, there will be frictions in the sense that, you know, be careful what you're doing because I have the same power, yeah. but um, not kind of out of war. It's more like uh, the, the nuclear threat against each other. And we, I think we've got you back, Ann Lee. Are you there? Yeah. Can okay. you hear me now? We can. We lost you there for a little bit. I'll let you finish up your comments that, that you just had uh, on that a second ago. <laughs> um, so I don't quite recall where I left, where you stopped hearing okay. me. Um, but what I was saying is that uh, I think that we can continue to expect tensions between U.S. and China in this regard, uh, given that, you know, the U.S. still is feeling threatened by China's ascendance uh, geopolitically and geoeconomically. And so, uh, so while it would be in the best interest of both countries to find ways to cooperate, um, there's still going to be, you know, a, a base that Trump wants to answer to, which is very angry with the fact that economic, uh, you know, benefits have not been accruing to them. And so he'll need to find a convenient scapegoat. He'll still need to respond to other, uh, you know, executive pressures that want to have more sweetheart deals in China and want China to open up even more than they have. So I think that this is, um, you know, this will be an ongoing story of, of, you know, this increasing rivalry between U.S. and China economically, especially as China, you know, really comes up quickly along the innovation route and, and the way they pivot more of their economy into research um, and into high tech. Uh, which is really stepping on the U.S. turf. Well, I wanted to touch on the technology end of it as well, because China, I, I assume, like every other country, Minwan, is obviously kind of, they are putting a lot of investment mm -hmm. into various elements of technology, whether it be artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But also probably like a lot of countries, they're still trying to learn kind of the, the limits, where the, you know where this actually is going to take them in right. the years to come. Right. China has 
invest a lot of money, part, partly for leapfrogging reasons, as I said. You know, this is the area China can compete effectively by starting something new and uh, really said, um, you know, be the friend here uh, in, in the global market. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's always this debate whether China can innovate. Even up to now, they say, okay, China is investing a lot in artificial intelligence, but are the original ideas coming from somewhere else? I th- this is not on the, um, the, on the top agenda right now. China is the best implementers of technology. So right. from AI to robotics to, um, you know, nanotechnology to biotech technology to new medication, uh, China is not the first country to come up with these ideas, but China put them to use very quickly uh, with innovative business models. And you can't say it's not innovation by itself. So you go to China and you see how it's, you know, the, for example, facial recognition technology is now installed on bathrooms. And yeah. everywhere they can make it so cheap, they can make it so easily applicable to the everyday life. So you know, by itself, I think that the business model renovation innovation will push China forward for a while. And Yeah. I mean, I think that um, what China offers is that they have massive data. They have more data uh, than any other country, including the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of AI, obviously, you know, the big area of AI is deep learning. And it, what it requires is that you have to have like a brain, an engine um, to train it to, uh, you know, to find patterns. And, um, and you have to run through lots of data sets to train the software to find these things. And in order to do that, you know, you have to have massive data sets and where you can do it is in China because they have collected so much of this. Um, and so where, so while maybe a lot of the initial ideas and talent is coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, it's, you know, it needs to be actually deployed in China in order for it to have real life applications. Um, and so I think that if the U.S. and China can actually uh, develop some kind of complementary relationship here, um, it would work to the benefit of both countries. But if they choose to be, you know, very secretive and competitive about it, then, you know, advances in this area will certainly be slower. Right. I totally agree. I think China becomes the one of the best markets to try out a lot of new technologies. Um, in the young people in China, even the old ones, I think the Chinese are very open to trying new ideas and uh, trying new business models. I um I talked with many people here in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of resistance in the overall market to try out new things. And Chinese were like, okay, next month, what do you have? So uh, even for Silicon Valley companies, they find China a very attractive market to try out the ideas or technologies. Great having you both with us. Uh, and thank you for your time on the phone today. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Minwa, great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.